today I'm doing Daniel chapter 3, uh, following on from last week. I'm just trying to navigate my Bible as quickly as I can. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is just read Daniel chapter 3, and then we'll have a bit of a chat about the significance of it. Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. By the way, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so if I offend you, you'll be okay. (laughs) Right, then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officers, officials, to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of all the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed him on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! A little bit of flattery before they do their dirty work. You issued a decree requiring all the people, blah, 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 to do those things that you think are so wonderful. That decree also states that whoever refused to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that they be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made. I've lost my spot because I looked up. Thank you. If you give, uh, but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them in the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. 
But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god or like the son of a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. I would hate to meet someone like Nebuchadnezzar. I was talking with uh, many people through the week, one of which was my mum, who's here, And she said, it's quite clear after this experience that Nebuchadnezzar became quite a man with Christian values. As you can see, he learnt to be humble and kind. And, you know, as you can see, uh, he tore people limb from limb if they didn't worship God. So clearly a man of of great uh, kindness and gentleness and the love of Christ. Amen. Okay, so what can we take away from Daniel chapter 3 from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? that is relevant to us as Christians in a society that does not always worship, value God, does not always respect the Christian faith, uh, has an increasing um, acceptance of relativism, atheism, and many other things like this. Well, I would suggest to you one of the most profound parts of this uh, chapter is not the fact that they were saved. It's actually the fact that they were so resolved in character that they were willing to die. They said, even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear to you, we will not serve your gods. They were so convinced in God. They were so grounded in their faith. They were so at peace in their relationship with God that they just didn't care. It didn't matter. Literally faced with the hardest circumstances, I mean, they realised that how they answer the king will get them thrown into the fire, but they're not moved. They are unmovable. So I want to suggest to you a very simple answer to the question, how do you live a Christian life in a world that doesn't always accept it? The answer is, live it seriously actually believe it. If you have an intellectual conception that God exists, congratulations, you're on the same level as the devil. If you have a firm conviction 
that history is accurate and Jesus did die and raise from the dead, congratulations, you're on the same level as atheist historians. If you have the understanding that there's probably something that created life and that life probably can't just magically come out of nothing because that breaks the very law of physics, and if you believe that the, the rationalism that you see in society and if you think the wonder of life and the miracle of birth and all the wonderful attributes of, of DNA and quality of life probably comes from a creator, congratulations, you're a smart person. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? What is our battle against? Principalities and powers. I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Ephesians. Ephesians 6.10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armour so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of who? The devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. I want you to, to try something for me. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable. And I want you to picture for a second heaven. I want you to picture a relationship with God where he is near to you physically. He is near to you emotionally. He is near to you spiritually. He has literally got your back. And I want you to open your eyes now and look around. Can you see it? I want to suggest to you that actually having the roof open wide and being look up, able to look up in heaven and see the angels is no more profound than when you look around now and you look at your brothers and sisters because the spiritual realm exists here. Where is the Holy Spirit right now? Here, in our midst. Where is the love of Christ? Here. Where is the battlefield of the spiritual realm? Here. Now, we don't wait till we get to heaven to participate in the spiritual battle. We don't wait until we get to heaven to be in the forces of the armies of, of, of God. The Lord of heaven's armies is our Lord. When Jesus was um, at the Last Supper, he said, I will not drink wine again until what comes in power. What comes in power? Kingdom. The kingdom is here now, yes? You are a part of whose kingdom? God's kingdom. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. And verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Another way of thinking about it is we were created for whose pleasure? God's pleasure. Purpose of life. A lot of people have grappled with that question. What is the purpose of your life? 
to please God. Why were you made? For his pleasure. Okay? When we accept that we were created for his pleasure, the absurdity of a God being willing to die for us while we were yet sinners suddenly isn't so hard to comprehend. The fact that God is willing to look past all of your sin and see something valuable in you suddenly becomes clear because we were created in the image. And I don't just mean that we look like physically what God looks like. I had somebody describe it to me once. I look different from you. So when it says we're created in the image, maybe it's talking more about we're created in his likeness, the ability to show compassion, the ability to show love, that we have a conscience, that we know right from wrong. In uh, Genesis, when Adam ate from the fruit and Eve ate from the fruit, God said, "Uh uh-oh, they have become like us. And that's why they kicked them out of the garden because they were worried they would eat the other fruit and live forever. They've become like us, like us in the ability to distinguish right from wrong. I want to talk about um, the question of living in a society where atheism rules sometimes, uh, relativism, if you're not familiar with relativism, it's the idea that there are no moral absolutes. In your life, you will have to make a decision. Everybody makes that decision. Who is the dictator of right and wrong? If you are a theist and you believe in God, then your belief is that God decides right and wrong. If you are an atheist, you need to find an alternative source, a moral lawgiver. And the problem that atheists face is they can't find a moral lawgiver. So some of them will say, well, I can decide what's right and wrong. So essentially they become their own God. Some people say, well, society creates what's right and wrong. Probably don't have to point out too many of the flaws in that one. Some people say, oh, you know, yes, generally there's, there's right and wrong, but that's come through a process of evolution and they try to explain it. But I want to suggest to you, this is so profoundly, you cannot live it out. You can't live it out. If you want to suggest to me that there is no ultimate right and wrong, but as a society we come together and we say, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, it's not right and wrong, it just is. If a society determines that murder is wrong, it's not wrong. They've decided it's wrong, but ultimately it just is. If that society turns around a week later and says, we've decided together in community that murder is right, is it any more right? No, just because you've said something collaboratively is right doesn't build a foundation for its ultimate reality of morals. So relativism is the idea that morals are relative to something and it doesn't stand and it cannot stand. Uh, In preparation for this, um, and some people came and watched the movie on on Friday night by John Lennox, who's a professor of mathematics and uh, science and philosophy, Um, and I went and did a whole bunch of research. Uh, He does a lot of uh, debates. In 2007, there was the God Delusion debate where he talked with Richard Dawkins, one of the leading atheists who wrote the book The God Delusion, and they debate this topic. Um, And I wanted to call out a couple of spiritual and evil lies now in the next few minutes. So we've talked about... Our battle is not against flesh and blood, 
What's our battle against? Principalities, evil forces, the devil, the spiritual realms, yes? So I want to suggest to you, if you are believing that you cannot have a rational conversation and evidence-based explain your faith, that is a lie from the pit of hell. I want to suggest to you that if you think that the difficulty of being a Christian in our society is that you will be beaten in the intellectual conversation, that is a lie from hell. I want to suggest to you that if you are worried that people are going to be so much further ahead in the ability to explain the rationality behind their belief than you, that is a lie from hell. Our battle is not against the intellectual argument for Christ. Our battle is not against the atheist. Our battle is not against somebody grippling, grappling with, with these difficult questions. What is our battle against? Powers, principalities, spiritual realm. We need to stop thinking, you know, this dimensionally and start thinking this dimensionally, yes? From watching many, many debates between atheists and theists, I've seen they're really peaceable. People think in society you cannot have a religious debate without all this drama and hatred and judgment and you're rejecting me as a person and, and all of this sort of just hogwash. If you go and watch any serious debate, the theist is respectful. Most of the time, the atheist is quite respectful. Yes? The fear that grips Christians is not from the atheists. It's from the principalities and powers because if the devil can convince you that you will lose, then you won't even participate. If the devil can convince you that it's a waste of your time, you won't even try. What spirit have we been given as Christians? Power, love, self-control. You have not been given a fear of timidity, a fear of, you have not been given a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. The devil understands something. And, and I've noticed this, I mean, I've grown up a Christian and I've heard a lot of sermons and I've heard a lot of uh, spiritual guff and uh, incorrectness and half-truths and as well as a whole lot of good stuff. But a lot of people like the idea that Satan is not that powerful. A lot of people think we can mock Satan. Do you know it says in the Bible that even the archangel Michael did not dare insult the devil, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. We do not need to underestimate the devil because he doesn't underestimate you. The devil knows that you carry a spirit of power and love and self-control against which, which no weapon formed will prosper. So once you participate in the debate, you bring the presence of the Holy Spirit, you bring power, you bring love, you bring self-control, you bring kindness, you bring all of these wonderful things that are going to advance the kingdom of God and push back the forces of evil. So what's the devil want you to do? Turn up or be afraid and not turn up? Wherever we go, wherever we are, we shine a light. We carry the truth, we carry power, we carry love. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were so convinced by the reality of their God 
they were so sure that their eternity was safe, locked in, that bowing was ludicrous. They didn't even consider it. They completely ignored the decree in the face of death. The Bible says we should not fear those who can kill the body. We should fear those who can kill the soul. The devil is not a person. He is a spiritual being. If you confront the devil without the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to leave that one there. I'm pretty sure you know how that one's going to go. If you confront the devil with the Holy Spirit, how's that going to go? Very different story. Very, very different story. God's really put it on my heart that... um, We are the church. When you participate in a conversation, when you participate in a difficult circumstance, when you come against um, oppression, persecution, when you come against the principalities, the powers and the ways of this world, you can be like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who are so resolved, they don't fear it. Or you can be intimidated. You cannot understand the power you carry and you can miss one of the most golden opportunities you might ever get. We are the Church of Christ. I've been listening to somebody um, on YouTube at the moment. He uh, has a really bold testimony. He... um, he grew up in, uh, his father was into witchcraft and um, he ended up being a part of the Church of Satan and at the age of 35 he was um, converted and became a Christian. And so he often talks about in his talks um, what he experienced being a part of the Church of Satan and what he now knows. And he is so convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said he was um, giving a talk somewhere and this person came up to him up the front. He was uh, about to start preaching and this person marched right up to him and they said, "Um, I've come here to destroy you. That's pretty scary. I wonder how I would cope if somebody burst through those doors and they came right up here and told me, I'm going to destroy you. I'd like to think that I'd handle it really well, but there's part of me that would probably run into that room and lock the door. But he said, did you bring all of your arsenal with you? And I said, what? what? Have you got everything with you? Because are you sure you're going to destroy me? Uh, Just before you you do, did you want to go back and get all of your arsenal? Because you're going to need it. Because in about 30 seconds, I'm going to open a can of whooping on you. Yeah? Power, love, self-control. Whenever you are in a situation where 
the principalities and the powers of darkness come up to you if you are firmly, firmly rooted in Christ, if you have accepted his Holy Spirit, you don't be afraid. You say, no, I'm not going to move, you move. So I want to encourage you, um, a lot of the time when people think it's hard to be a Christian in this society, when I say, well, where did you get that information from? Oh, society is declining faster than we've ever seen in history. Who told you that? Have you opened the books of history lately? Oh, society is going in a direction that we cannot come back from. Who said that? Why listen to it? Oh, I can't participate in these conversations because people will think I'm judging them. Who said that? Who said it? Because if you listen to that and you don't advance where God was planning on using you, the devil's won. It's like a game of chess. The devil knows that he doesn't want to fight you. He does not want to fight the Holy Spirit because it ruins his day. It ruins the damage he can cause against God and it ruins the damage he can cause. It ruins his ability to steal, kill and destroy. It bonded, binds him up in bondage, breaks his strongholds. So instead he approaches you and he reminds you how small you are, how frail you are, how big the enemy is. Yeah, Because if he can beat you at that game, then he doesn't have to lose to you at God's game. So my encouragement to you is, if you want to be a Christian living in an age of relativism, and if you want to be able to stand against the tide, take your faith seriously. Work out your salvation. Carry the Holy Spirit with you. It is the only thing the only thing that will save you. But not only is it the only thing that will save you, once you understand the reality of being saved, you don't fear anything. Paul said in the New Testament, dying is gain. If someone comes up and kills me right now, hallelujah, I get to go and have lunch with Jesus yeah but if I stay here he says I'm convinced that it is for your benefit Paul knows where he's going I know where I'm going do you know where you're going because if you know where you're going you will not fear another thing I'm not saying you won't experience fear but it will not grip you because we have not been called to a spirit of fear but power love sound mind, self-control. If we all died in this moment, hallelujah. If we stay here, then by the time we do get to heaven, maybe heaven will be a little bit bigger because maybe in the meantime, we can bring some other people in to know his love. Other people who were also made in the image and likeness of God. Other people who also need the Holy Spirit to stand against the enemy other people who also 
are being broken by the fear strategies of the enemy. Other people who also God died for. Other people who have value. Other people that were made for God's pleasure and are locked in depression because they're not living it out. If you are not meeting what you were made for, how are you going to have joy? We were made for God's pleasure. If you don't have a profound sense that you are pleasing God, how will you ever have joy? How do we please God? Love God. Love others. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your kindness and your love and your power. Thank you that you're going to use my babbling words to speak your truth into people's hearts. Thank you that when we participate in the supernatural battle, that we are unstoppable because of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that the devil is afraid of us when we have you. Thank you for discernment. Thank you for your power. I pray this week, Lord God, that each person here would take a moment to sit at the feet of your son, contemplate the power you have for us, be convinced of your love and your eternity. And that we would go from glory to glory, from power to power, from love to love. And that we would advance your kingdom. And that every time we open our eyes, we would see the realities of heaven. We would see the love of God at work in the lives of the precious ones you created, whether they see it yet or not. Praise you, Father God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.